the impact of story is something that we can all resonate with. Even, even when you see the pictures of, 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 from the pages of Scripture reflected in the eyeballs the way that we do in the video before the sermon, you can connect with the idea of a story. We love them. Like it's something that's inside of us that God has placed in us that story connects to us. Right? There are entire industries that are built around the idea that we connect with stories, that we like to watch stories, we like to hear stories, we like to read stories, we like to listen to stories. I mean, think about, um, think about even just generations of people, whether, and we're talking fiction or nonfiction, the idea of story kind of resonates and it transcends generations. Right? Like, how many of you, um, when I say transformers, the idea of a transformer, Okay, like a little action figure. How many of you have any sort of connection with a Transformer? Can you put your hand in the air? Okay, so what about Star Wars? Okay, what about um, Harry Potter? Some of you are embarrassed of that one. What about, um, what about, ready for this one, what about Disney? Okay, so all of these ideas, these concepts, concepts are all based on the idea that we connect with story. Transformers, right? Like this is this little action figure that I played with when I was a little kid. So now you've got the generation above me, my parents, who have this kind of like story around Transformers. You've got the generation below me, my kids, my boys, which this is really smart marketing. Um, they now love Transformers, and there's movies and, and TV series that are built around the story of Transformer. Disney World. Um, this entire concept that we will spend thousands of dollars to go and experience the story ourselves. Right? These imaginative, fictional stories, we connect with them, we have memories, we have feelings, we have emotions that are all associated with this story, whatever storyline it is. And it's the same way with nonfiction stories, stories that are real. They connect with us, they resonate with us. It's the reason whenever we go to watch a movie that's inspiring and we know that it was based off of true life events or whatever, that when we hear it, we like resonate with it. In some ways, we even put ourselves, the ones that we really connect with, we put ourselves in the position of a character within that movie. Or whenever we hear a story of redemption, we connect with that. A story of struggle, we can connect with that. A story of, of hope. It gets us excited. It gets us encouraged. Um, one of, one of our, our staff team uh, sent, sent a text last night saying that a person that she had shared the gospel with um, this past week had, had decided to follow Christ and was kind of just moving in this process of discipleship. And I get that text, and I connect with that because I got the backstory of it, and I'm in the middle of it. I'm excited. You know, It makes me want to go out and, and, and go ne- knock on my next-door neighbor's door and share the gospel with him. There's this story, this idea of story that connects with us and kind of like propels us and moves us into action. And scripture works in that exact same way. That's what the gospel is. It's this story. It's a true story of Jesus. And when we read it, it kind of connects with us and we can see ourselves in some of those situations, in some of those scenarios. Um, The way that Danny has started off this come and see series, when Jesus calls the disciples to himself, for those of us who are following Jesus, we can remember that time when when we first chose to follow him, when we heard his voice clearly and we responded in faith. Last week with, um, with the woman at the well, 
Jesus kind of naming the woman's sin and naming her history and naming her past and extending forgiveness to her and calling her to more. We can place ourselves in that scenario. Um, and in this, this week, we're going to pick up in John chapter 11 and look at another story. Uh, John is, is one of my favorite uh, uh, writers in the New Testament. I love Paul, but John, for some reason, the way that he writes, the way that he stories, uh, I just connect with him. It's the way that he, I think there's some emotion built into the way that he writes. Um, but this morning, we're going to pick up in John chapter 11, and we're going to look at a story that he writes, a true story. It's an account of an interaction that Jesus had with some of his friends. Um, this story, it's, uh, it spans all of John chapter 11, so there's a lot of text happening here, but it's broken up into kind of four basic scenes, and we're just going to progress through those scenes together, and we're going to see kind of within the context of this story, how is, tr- is truth spoken to us as we read it and as we internalize it? So this is John chapter 11, and we're going to start off reading verses um, 1 through 6 together. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped, her, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent message to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, when he heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, so we start off in verse 1. We see this story. It's kind of a scene being set here. That Jesus is with his disciples, and he gets word that Lazarus is ill. Okay, so it's this, this set of three, brother, uh, a brother and two sisters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they send word to Jesus. Okay, now we read through the, the rest of this story, and you're going to see it kind of unpack and unfold, that Jesus has deep, connects, deep connection with, with Martha and with Mary and Lazarus. They're good, close friends, right? So whenever the sisters send word to Jesus, it's kind of twofold as to what's happening here. Jesus, they send word to Jesus because they're tight, because they're friends, and because they know that Jesus, their friend, and, and even the way that John writes it, the one whom he loves, Lazarus, is ill. And so he would want to know what's going on with this family. He would want to know what's going on uh, with this set. But at the same time, they're, they're wanting to inform him, but they also know that Jesus is the one who can do something about it. Okay, So they want him to know their situation, but they also want him to know because he, he can fix it. They've heard about it. More than likely, they've seen it where Jesus has been among those who are sick, those who are blind, those who couldn't walk, those who, who, who uh, couldn't speak, all those sorts of things. And they've seen Jesus fix them. They've seen Jesus bring healing. But his response when he hears that Lazarus is sick is that it won't end in death. Okay, so the way that John writes it at the beginning, we're like, there's, there's hope going on here. The man is sick. These are people that he's friends with, people that he's tight with. And Jesus' response is, this is not the kind of sickness that ends in death. But then we kind of see what, um, even on the front end, how John is setting the stage for the rest of the story. John, um, evidently, he likes to give a little spoiler. When he writes about Mary being, um, the reference that he makes to her, Mary being the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil, that doesn't even happen until chapter 12. The way that he sets the stage with this is saying that this is not the kind of sickness that ends in death, is what Jesus is saying. Well, we read the rest of the story, and we read that Lazarus does, in fact, die here. So it even causes on the front end to raise some questions in our mind as, as we read it. We see that everything that's happening with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, 
is being done so that Jesus would be lifted up and so that glory would be given to God. That's exactly what he says in verse four. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. John's gospel is all kind of tailor-fit in this one direction, that glory would be given to Jesus and that the people who read this gospel would, would understand who Jesus is and that they would believe in him. They would have faith in him. All of it points in this direction. And you're going to see that clearly throughout this chapter. He uses this word, this idea of belief, over and over and over again so that the readers, so that the family, so that the people, so that they would believe in Jesus. Verse 5, we see this deep connection that Lazarus has um, with Mary and Martha and Jesus. He says, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, it's this relational connection that we see in Jesus and in a couple other areas in this chapter that kind of show us the humanness of Christ. He loved them. He was connected to them. He had relationship with them. I think often when we think about Jesus, we think about him hanging out with his posse of 12 with the disciples, and we see this other crowd of people just kind of following along after him, trying to observe some believing, some not believing. But we see here that Jesus had deep relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When we pick up in chapter 12, directly after 11, we see that Jesus is at the house with Mary and Martha and Lazarus six days before Passover. He's celebrating with them. He's feasting with them together. Jesus had people that he was invested in. Beyond just these disciples that he was intentionally connected to, we see this kind of like heart-level friendship that was happening with Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is unique in what we see in the Gospels. We don't see this kind of relationship attached to um, very many other people, that Jesus would be so deeply rooted and connected with them. So we see this, he has deep relationship with them, then we look at verse 6, and kind of what happens next doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It says, he loved them, so Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, um, this seems really counterproductive and kind of counterintuitive. If Jesus loves someone, if he loves people, this specific family, and he hears that they are ill, that, they, that, that Lazarus is sick, and that he can go to them, and that he knows he has all authority in heaven and, and on earth, that Jesus has all of that, that he's healed the sick, He's even healed the sick from a distance. If you remember the story of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, he didn't even have to go. He just spoke the word, and the little girl's illness was taken away. So it doesn't really make sense. There has to be a purpose happening here. There has to be something that's going on. Then we move to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 11. Jump with me here. So Jesus makes this purpose clear here. Now remember the scene is Jesus and the disciples. He's hearing word about Lazarus. So Jesus tells them, then he told them plainly, Lazarus has died and it's for your sake. Remember who's listening again? The disciples. It's for your sake. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So what Jesus is is saying is that even the concept that his friend would die, he was sick and now he has died, he's passed away, and they've stayed in a place where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that Jesus would stay and not kind of engage the situation that's at hand here. He's saying it's for your sake that this has happened, that you may believe, that you would know that truly all authority on heaven and on earth, the way that we read in Matthew 28, has been given to Jesus and that they would believe in what they see that comes, what comes next. 
So they move uh, toward Bethany is kind of what follows in this section. And um, they don't really understand kind of why Jesus is moving in a direction where he's experienced persecution and difficulty, but he's moving in that direction. Um, He's moving in that direction anyway. We see that the the goal here is, is what is at hand, that Jesus would move with purpose, that he would move with direction, and that he would move to a place to where he can engage the people that he loves. Next, we see Jesus in this kind of scene that follows afterward. This is John chapter 11, um, starting in verse 21. So we see Jesus with the disciples. Now we see Jesus talking to Martha. It says, Jesus said to Martha, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So at this point in time, whenever Jesus uh, comes into the place where Martha can come running out to him, Lazarus has been in the tomb for about four days. And she's in a situation where I'm sure she is circling over and over and over again. If her friend had only been here, if the Messiah had only been here, if teacher had only been here, he could have prevented this entire mess from happening. And that's the way that Martha responds to him. You know, the way that, that um, we see Mary and Martha in the Gospels is we see Martha is this kind of like engaged one. She's kind of the worker, doer. You remember that scene from the teaching in the kitchen in Scripture where Jesus is there and he's teaching and Martha's the one that's keeping busy and her sister, her sister Mary is the one that's sitting listening intent to Jesus. When we see Martha, she's kind of the responder, the actor in this. She gets word that Jesus is around and she runs straight to him and she says, if only you had been here. If only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But then she responds, this is like, I was telling, I was telling Holly earlier, it's almost like I want to do this Myers-Briggs analysis on Mary and Martha because you can kind of connect with their personality a little bit in here. She responds with, but I know, she's a thinker, but I know you, and I know that whatever you ask of God, God is going to give you, even now, even in the midst of her loss and her disappointment, in a scenario that seems really hopeless. Her brother's been in the grave for four days. She says, I know that whatever you ask of the Father, whatever you ask of him, he's going to give to you. So even in the midst of disappointment, there's this knowledge, there's this faith that Jesus is who he says he is. Even when she, whenever Jesus says to her, he's not dead, he's going to rise again, she responds with, I know, I know, I know. In the last day, Whenever all of human history is over and Jesus returns, because of Lazarus' faith in Jesus, he's going to raise from the dead. And Jesus' response is, no, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not this, just this thing that's going to happen at the culmination of human history. When all of the days of earth are done and this historical event happens where Jesus comes and places this capstone on all of time, that magically everyone that has had faith in Christ, that has been in covenant with God through the blood of Jesus, will be raised from the grave, but that Jesus himself is resurrection and life. He brings things that are dead back into existence again. And that he is life. 
It's like, it's like Martha responds to Jesus saying, I know that you can do anything. I know that you can heal the sick. I know that you can even like cast out demons, these crazy things that Jesus was doing in order that people would know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God sent to earth, okay? It's like Martha says, I know you can do everything, but this one's way past what you can do. It's, it's way outside of your skill set. It's long gone. And Jesus' response is, I have authority over everything. I am the resurrection. I bring things back from the dead. I am the life. I give breath. I think that we often live like Martha. I think there are scenarios in our life where we know Jesus can do things. Okay, And we kind of like pitch him a softball every now and then. We ask him to do something that it's almost like if I try hard enough or if I have faith in this thing that I think is pretty easy, then surely he's going to respond. But this, this thing, this thing that seems too deep, too wide, too hard, too difficult, way too far outside of, of human explanation, ah, Jesus, this, this isn't for you. This is for me. My situation, when it seems too hopeless, when it seems too difficult, I'm going to place it in this category where I say it's, it's way outside of your skill set. And so whatever happens is going to happen, and whenever it happens, I'm just going to try and kind of wash it away, and I'm going to put those voices aside that say that I didn't have enough faith, and it's just going to not make sense for a while. But God, I still know you're in control, Jesus. I know that still anything that you ask, anything that you ask of the Father, he's going to give to you. Martha had faith, but she kind of segmented it aside. Now, there are those of us that are here today, part of our church family, that there are these big case scenarios that you're thinking of. This sickness is outside. It may be outside. I don't know yet. This grieving, it's way outside of Jesus' skill set, outside of God's ability to change or to, 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 uh, to fix. This family situation, all, things that we put in this kind of other category, but then there are those of us that we even think about that in kind of like the normal, mundane things of the day. Jesus, I want you to take care of my children's salvation, but this everyday thing, when I feel like their behavior is completely out of control, this is totally outside of your skill set. You're not looking at being involved in this aspect of my life or my kids' lives. I'm going to take this one on my own and deal with it the way that it comes. When what Jesus responds with is, I have control over every. Thing. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus is going to live again, and she agrees. She says, yeah, I know, you're right. The day will come when he will. And he responds with, life comes from him. And he is in control of all. He is sovereign over us. This is the, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, this is the fifth of seven statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, where he, um, he takes things and he says, I am this. And the kind of I am statement that he's making, it's the same type of statement that, that, um, that Moses makes when he goes to Pharaoh and he says, I am sent me. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Those are the kinds of statements that Jesus makes in John. But the way that he makes this I am statement here in chapter 11, read with me again in, um, in verses 25 and 26. It says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. So it's like what he's saying is death is not the end with Jesus. Death gives to life, gives to never dying again, only through Jesus, only through the gospel. He makes dead people to live, dead people to live only to never die again. And this is the truth of the gospel, friends. Martha was looking for a fix to her sadness. She was looking for Jesus to take something that was going to die anyway and make it live a little bit longer, to make him live a little bit longer. But what Jesus is saying here is I'm talking about life past this life. I'm talking about giving a life past a mortal body and past fixing a sickness and past bringing uh, breath back into lungs that have, have died. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not a physical illness, but a spiritual illness that leads to death past death or life past life. And Jesus gives us life past life. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. It is by grace, only the goodness of God, not by our works, only by his giving good to us, are we saved. We were dead. We were in a tomb for four days. All hope was lost. It looks like we were going nowhere. And in the middle of our death, Jesus comes up to us while we're laying in the coffin after four days have set in, and he opens it and he breathes life into us, air that will never go away again. And he only does it because he lived in our place, because he died in our place and he rose in our place. He rose for us to secure life past life for us. So what Jesus is saying when he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's talking about life that will never end, eyes that will never fade. That he gives us hope for here, for now, but he secures for us something past this, past this life. Our bodies were never meant to last And Lazarus, as we see, and Jesus calls him back to life, Lazarus' body, whether it it died from the illness that caused his death or something else, Lazarus' body would have ended. This body, it's not meant to last. It's going to end. It's going to fade. I don't like to think about that. What I do like to think about is the fact that past this life, I'm going to see true life in Jesus. Because I know that he died in order to to secure my forgiveness. All that separates me from God. Jesus died to right that wrong. Living in perfection, dying in my place, raising from the grave. When we put our faith in him, when we believe in him the way that John writes it, We get life past this life. 
life that never ends. So we see Jesus with Martha. Verses, um, look with me in verses 32 through 35. This is Jesus talking with Mary. So we know that Mary and Martha are different just from our experience of, of seeing them in Scripture before, but we see this here again now. This is John 11:32 through 35. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And she said to him, she, and, he said, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. So after Martha's conversation with Jesus, she goes back to Mary, her sister, who's crying, and she's with, um, she's with people that are crying with her, and she says, Jesus, the teacher, he's looking for you. And so she gets up and she rushes out after him and the people that are crying with her, they go and they rush out with her as well. They think that she's just going to go back to the graveside and cry some more. But instead, she lands at the feet of Jesus, crying. We see this emotion in her, not the way that John writes about Martha. He writes about Mary in this way. Um, Mary, Martha came to Jesus with her knowledge. I'm sad, you could have fixed this, but I still know. What Mar- Mary comes to Jesus with is just this sheer brokenness. Jesus, if only you had been here, this raw emotion, you could have kept him from dying. He would not have died. Mary is confirming what Martha has already said in conversation with Jesus, that she feels like their situation is hopeless. It is beyond hope. It's beyond fixing. She even uses that same wording. Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Now we see in verse 33, when when Jesus saw Mary and the people that were crying with her, the way that John writes it, it says that he was deeply moved It even says um, that he was troubled after that, and then that he wept. What we see in this passage, I think at a first sweep, we see this connection that Jesus has with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Like his buddy died, and he's sad, and he's seeing the raw emotion of someone else that's in front of him, and they are mourning, and they're grieving, and Jesus is mourning, and Jesus, Jesus is grieving. He's sad. He's sad that who he used to hang out with isn't around anymore. He's sad that his friends are sad. We see the humanness of Jesus, that when we say that Jesus came and lived in our place, I feel like sometimes we think of him as this like man that walked around with like very white, pristine robes on all the time, and he had this like expressionless look on his face, and he would just walk around and pat little children on the head as he moved, and he would just kind of like wave his hands in the direction of someone that was ill, and they would automatically get well. But what we see here is that Jesus was brought, he was connected to people and connected to their emotion. He wasn't stoic. He wasn't robotic. He was a man. When we say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, we see his humanity even in this passage. He was sad. He lost his buddy. But it also says that he was troubled. Jesus looks on his friend Mary. He looks at the people that are sitting there crying with her. He's sad and he's troubled. What would he be troubled about? We see at the beginning of this this passage that that Jesus' goal in here, in this whole interaction, would be the belief of others in him as the Messiah, as the one that God sent to make right the cosmic wrong of sin. He looks on them and he sees unbelief. He sees mourning 
He sees sadness. He sees human emotion. But he also sees unbelief. Jesus is troubled by this because this is his goal. He wants people to believe in him, that God has a plan and a purpose at work here, and that he is that plan and he is that purpose. So he's troubled. Then he asks something. He asks Mary. He asks the people that are with her. He asks to see the evidence of their hopelessness. Where's his body? Where is he? I want to see how bad it is. It's almost like what he's saying. And their response to him is, come and see for yourself. Jesus, come and see it's real bad. Jesus, come and see there is no hope. Jesus, come and see your friend, your buddy, he's gone. All in the middle of their sadness, all in the middle of their hopelessness. Jesus asks to be invited into it. Now, when we think about those things that we would maybe deem hopeless situations, lost causes in our lives, sickness, death, things that are just a byproduct of living in a fallen world, we can't always explain it. Sickness, death, unexplained tragedy, we also think about things that, that are, are, are connected to human relationship. What are lost causes in your family that you're going to interact this week with? You're going to go home for Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving is going to come to your home and you're going to remember that relationship that was broken that you feel like is never going to be restored and it's never going to be redeemed. Jesus, you want to see my hopelessness? Come sit down at my Thanksgiving table. And you're going to see it for yourself. Because it's gone. Jesus asks to be invited into the situation that is completely hopeless. That seems functionally and practically hopeless. And friends, Jesus does that same thing for us. He asks to be invited into that situation and he breathes and he speaks purpose into it. Verse 35, it says that Jesus cries, um, I think that we get kind of uncomfortable with this idea of a Messiah that would weep, of someone who would be in control of all things, but at the same time would be moved to raw emotion. It seems like he would be out of control or not really be able to fix something if he's crying over something that he himself could fix. So it kind of makes us uncomfortable. We think that Jesus shouldn't act in that way or shouldn't act in that form. But the truth is, we see that we have a God who can sympathize with us. We have a Savior in Jesus who can sympathize with us, that he understands our emotion, that he understands loss. He understands hurt. He understands pain. I think what's real interesting is this kind of like sideline that... um, that John puts in there in verses 36 and 37. It's almost like the Jews that are with them in this scenario, they look on Jesus and they're like, oh, poor guy. He loved him so much. If only he would have been here, he could have fixed it. They look on him with like this pride and this pity. They thought it was outside of Jesus' ability to change as well. Look, look with me at verses 39 through 45. It says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of people that are standing around, that they may 
believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died, he came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, they believed in him. Now we read later on in that passage that some of those believed, they ended up uh, being a follower of Jesus, and some of those who believed ended up being a part of what led to Jesus' trial and death. So they get to the tomb, verses 38, 39, and Jesus says, all right, I've asked for evidence of your hopelessness. I've asked for where he is. And Martha's practical response is, it's going to smell real, it's going to be like tuna fish in there. You're going to roll back the stone, and it's going to be stanky stank. It's going to be real bad, like just practically. She's a practical person. And Jesus says, just roll back the stone. Roll back the stone. And Jesus, he speaks, he prays out loud, he talks to his father, and he says, I'm saying these things. This is happening right now that they may believe that he is the Messiah, that he has all authority on heaven and on earth in control of all situations, that he can speak life into death. And what does he do? He tells, he, tells, um, he tells Lazarus to come out of the grave. He calls him forth. Now, how can Jesus do this? How can Jesus speak life into death? He is God. He is the Son of God. He has put on flesh. He has come to earth. He has lived in our experience. And he himself, we see a paralleled experience here. We, he himself would end up in a tomb for three days with a stone that has been rolled in front of it. He didn't need anyone to call him out. He didn't need anyone to remove the stone. He didn't need anyone to tell him to remove the strips of cloth from his body. Jesus, who is in control of all things, has all authority in heaven and on earth, got up from a grave, the stone was moved, walked out of the door so that others would believe that he is the Messiah, achieving for us salvation. He called Lazarus from the grave because he himself entered the grave. So he comes walking out, looking kind of like a mummy, I can guess. And can you imagine being there in that situation where you're seeing a dead man walk? Okay, and the significance of the time frame here is, is, uh, is big. Um, there were people that would believe that um, if someone would be raised from the dead or would appear, uh, seem to come back from the dead after a couple days, that they really weren't dead in the first place, just imagine kind of like how they had no medical technology. They appear dead, but they really weren't. But surely by the time four days had come around, there's no way that anyone has been wrapped and preserved and laying in a tomb and that they would be able to get up and walk out. So Jesus speaks life into death. He gives life to Lazarus. I think that, um, that it's really important that we recognize here what is happening. Jesus was not chasing after the happiness of Mary and Martha. His friends didn't, or his friends didn't come to him and they said, hey, this is, this is my problem and I need you to fix it. Jesus, from the get-go, he says, I'm going to enter into this situation. I am here so that you would believe, so that they would believe. So what he does with Lazarus, he calls him to life. But what's going to happen to Lazarus later? He's going to die. His body's going to wear out, and he's going to likely end up in that exact same tomb that he came walking from. 
Now, does that mean that all authority is not given to Jesus? Does that mean that he does not have control over all things? No. Jesus is speaking purpose into the midst of a situation that seems hopeless, beyond repair. The way that only Jesus can. Jesus is continually calling people toward belief. He's calling the disciples toward belief. He's calling Martha toward belief. He's calling Mary toward belief. He's calling the the Jews that are standing around watching this whole scenario unfold. He's calling them all to belief. And that's what he's doing in our lives. Belief is not this thing that we do when we first profess Jesus. It is part of it. When When we understand the grace that we receive through Jesus... When we understand what he did and achieved on the cross for us, we believe, we profess faith in it, we receive forgiveness, we are restored in the right relationship with God. But belief is this thing that we are called to over and over and over again. It is this process of discipleship, of following Jesus, where we remember that he is indeed with us, that he does, in fact, speak purpose into difficulty, that he is, in fact, in control of all things, that he loves us that he wants our good, and that in giving us his good, he receives glory for it. We must believe, and we must be a people that surround one another with others that are calling us to believe. That's what the church is, friends. Just like Jesus is calling him to believe, we're to be a people that are calling one another to believe over and over and over again. When we're struggling with temptation, when we're struggling with fear, when we're struggling with anxiety, when we're struggling with a hopeless situation, to ask one another, where is your unbelief in this? Where are you not believing the goodness of God? Now let's be really careful here to recognize that what I'm saying is not kind of like the, the Christian washover of, well, if you, if, you, if you don't believe enough, then bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen, and we still believe It's part of life. It is part of living in a world that's affected by disobedience and rebellion toward God. Sickness is going to happen. Death is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen in our world and in our lives. But Jesus is continually, and this is what we see in, in, in the Gospels altogether, Jesus is continually calling people toward belief in the midst of difficulty. In the midst of his own death, Jesus is calling people toward what? Toward belief that he is the son of God, that he did come to make our relationship right with God. And he did it through himself. So we continually, over and over again, we come back to belief. We encourage one another toward belief. Jesus, just the same way that Jesus called others toward belief. Now notice how Jesus interacted with their unbelief, okay? Whenever Jesus, um, we see in verses 34 and um, 35, we see that Jesus is troubled, that he's saddened, and that part of his sadness and his troubledness is because of the unbelief of the people. Now, does Jesus respond with condemnation toward them? Does he put them down? Does he tell them that if only they had believed, Lazarus would have, been, would have, would have stayed alive? Does he put the onus on them saying your faith is, is your, your belief is so weak that nothing is going to come of it. What Jesus does is he encourages their faith. He calls them toward faith. He calls them toward belief over and over and over and over again. That's what the gospel is, is belief in Jesus. 
and we apply that belief to everyday situations and circumstances in our own lives. What Jesus goes for in this situation is not to just kind of make sad people happy, to not just meet an an immediate need that's right in front of them. What Jesus goes for is their greatest need. Eternal life, belief in Jesus, life past this life. So when we find ourselves in the middle of situations that seem completely hopeless, when we feel like all hope is gone, and let, let, let me just tell you, like, Holly and I have been there over the past year and a half, where all hope is gone. And, I, and it seems like the sadness that you're living in is just the storm with unending rain, and like it's never, ever, ever going to go away. And in the middle of that, not outside of it, not pushing to happiness, but in the middle of that, belief in the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, that is the goal. Not my happiness, not just life from physical death, but belief that says, I have a Savior who passed passed my wishes right now. I have a Savior who meets my greatest need. He gives me life past this life. He gives me hope for now and hope for life to come through himself. So when we don't understand what's going on, when life seems hopeless, when the end of the road seems completely out of sight, Jesus is in the middle of that, asking to be invited into it asking to be in the middle of our lives, speaking hope, speaking life. I want you to bow your heads for just a couple minutes. The way that God is a personal God, that he is a father that knows his children, this means that when his word is taught, when it's read, that God the Father, his spirit comes and teaches us truth and he applies it to our lives. And so in this room today, there are some of you that as we're talking through Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that you can identify, you can name what that hopeless situation is. That situation that seems outside of God's skill set. It's kind of this other thing. And you're living there and you can name it because you circle around it over and over again. You're just spinning around it, thinking how it's never going to change. It's always going to be the same. There's nothing that can be done about it. Whatever that thing is, Jesus is asking to be invited into it. To give purpose in the midst of it. To offer perspective on it. So whatever that is, I want you to just go ahead. And even if this is just an act of kind of following what I'm asking you to do, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would birth belief in in us. So invite Jesus into that situation. Even if you've done it before, ask him to come and be with you in the middle of it again. Ask him to give life where all you see is death.
Father, even as we hear the rain beating on the roof above us, we're reminded of your provision for us, the goodness that you give us in Jesus, that you wash away all of our sin and all of our shame, that you give us life past this life, and that you do it through him. Jesus, today we thank you that you are with us and you are in control of all things, that you are all-powerful, that you have all authority. And today we ask that you would come into these situations and that we would know your presence, that we would know what belief in the midst of difficulty and hopelessness looks like. And God, we know that you know what that is like, even even how you as a father must have felt with your son Jesus in a situation where you have caused all of these things going to, in, into, in, into order, into purpose, that Jesus is dying on a cross, a situation that looks completely hopeless, yet he rises from the grave, securing for us salvation. God, we thank you that your word tells us that you are with us, that you are an ever-present help in the time of trouble, that you are out for the weak and the weary, that you are the hope in the midst of hopelessness, that you are with us and that you are over us. We thank you for this truth. We pray these things in the sovereign name of Jesus. Amen.